Welcome to the Entrepreneurial Leap Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Dubay. For context, this podcast is inspired by the book, Entrepreneurial Leap by Gino Wickman. Gino is the founder of EOS Worldwide and an author with over 2 million copies of his books sold worldwide. Now in his next phase, he is taking his passion for helping entrepreneurs by partnering with five equally passionate, successful entrepreneurs, myself included, who have created the E-Leap Academy, where we teach the content from the book in a one-year program guaranteed to increase the success of early stage businesses. Now, a quick note about me. I've been an entrepreneur since the age of 14 when I started my first business selling blow pop lollipops out of my locker with my best friend. I ran a company that I sold to a public company and later bought back. I'm an author, speaker, host of an annual leadership retreat, and I'm partners in several other businesses. I'll be your host for the Entrepreneurial Leap Podcast where every other week, you will be hearing life stories from successful entrepreneurs who took the leap into entrepreneurship. You will learn from their mistakes and successes and be inspired as you move forward on your journey. Now, before I introduce my guest, I'm going to share with you a bit about eLeap Academy. The Entrepreneurial Leap Academy provides an immersive nine-month experience for new entrepreneurs with a focus on the three C's, clarity, confidence, and community. Let's start with the first C, clarity. You will learn to be clear about who you are, what you want from your business, and how to get it. The next C, confidence. You will learn to be confident you're on the right path, equipped with powerful mindset tools. The last C, connected you will become connected to a community of entrepreneurs just like you. Now, all participants receive four full-day in-person classes led by experienced entrepreneurs to equip you with the tools and strategies necessary to build a successful business. The Academy's dynamic community connects participants with a tribe of like-minded individuals for support and networking opportunities during and between classes. Students also receive a seasoned mentor offering personalized guidance and expertise to help you navigate the challenges of entrepreneurship. To start building the business of your dreams, visit our website at e-leap Again, that's e-leap.com. There, you can learn more about and sign up for the next Entrepreneurial Leap Academy. Today's guest is Kathy Colby, an acclaimed theorist, best-selling author, and pioneer in her field. Kathy was the first to prove the existence of the cognitive mental faculty, which causes us to act, react, and interact. Believing that we are all equally perfect in our own way, she has spent over 40 years collecting and analyzing cognitive traits to ultimately help us be ourselves. She founded Colby Corp and was the CEO for 30 years and is now its chairman emerita. Colby has been called Maslow's successor 
because of her work in showing how the three parts of the mind, cognitive, affective, and cognitive, affect the creative problem-solving process. Based on this seminal work, Colby was able to identify the algorithm for team synergy. After decades of research with hundreds of organizations, she was also able to author a comprehensive set of programs to assist leaders in making wise decisions based on a comprehensive set of human factors involving cognitive, affective, and cognitive levels of effort. Kathy now works to reform learning and wellness fields at every level. She has consulted with the U.S. Department of Education, individual schools from pre-K through high school, more than 50 universities, and more than 200 health and medical organizations. Not only has she helped to change the entrepreneurial community, but she is one heck of an entrepreneur herself. And you are going to love my interview with Kathy. So here we go. Please enjoy my chat with Kathy Colby. Kathy, welcome to the Entrepreneurial Leap Podcast. I'm so grateful that you're taking the time to speak with us today. I'm delighted to be here. So, you know, I always like to start with a quote. And so I'm going to read a quote. And then I'd like, if you seem to know who said the quote, that would be great, but no pressure. And just what comes to your mind when you hear it. Is that okay? Sure. Okay, great. So the quote goes like this. The Atlantic says personalities change at 65. That can happen, but I assure you, your instincts will be intact for the rest of your life. Cognitive strengths are everlasting. You're stuck with me being me, and I'm glad you will always be you. All right, so you said, do you have any idea who said it? Oh, gosh, I wonder who said that. <laughs> Sorry, I set you oh. up. <laughs> so what, tell, tell, expand on that. Tell us more. You know, I, I don't very often go on social media and take on a particular person or their ideas. Sometimes I just can't help myself because they're so <laughs> off. And that article was just so off. Um, and they're so full of themselves. I think, you know, if I write for this journal, if they publish it, it's got to be the truth. Well, no. Most of the world, after I, you know, for 50 years now, I mean, next year will be the 50th anniversary of my discovering conation and the four modes. I'm a little sad. No, I'm a big sad about the fact that so many people still believe that they can change who they are. And gosh, if I just go to this, we used to call them finishing schools. Uh, if I go to this place and they tweak me, I'll be more this or more that as a person. It makes me very, very sad how many people are still picking the wrong careers, how many leaders are still demanding the wrong kind of behaviors from the people that they are supposed to be managing. The world is messed up with a lot of stress that's totally and completely unnecessary. Mm. Most of the stress in the world is caused by misplaced cognitive expectations and responsibilities. It's easily fixed. I've been working so hard to train people who will go out into the field and teach this for major corporations, entrepreneurs. I mean, it's true of all of us. It's not just some of us. 
mm-hmm. who were created with natural problem solving abilities. We were all created to be creative problem solvers. We're all equal in that sense. And yet so many people think they don't have what it takes to do that. Wow. And, and they think they'll never get it. Mm. Our schools haven't taught individuals how each and every one of them is equal. I'm so big on this mission for equality in terms of how we create solutions. We are all able to. Mm. I'm the youngest of four. I got pretty sick and tired of watching, oh, the oldest or the only son, because there were three girls and a boy. They're the ones who know the answers. I'm sitting there with the answer, folks. (laughs) And so I was, I became rebellious very young. Interesting. About, no, I I know the answers. I'm going to tell you the answer. Pay attention mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And I I just took over so many things where I saw the wrong way happening. I got up in classrooms and stood in front of teachers and started talking to the students, ignoring the teacher and taking over the class. <laughs> I did that in middle school. I did it in high school. I did it in college. I can't stand to see people mistreated cognitively. Mm. So, you know, before we hit record, I was sharing with you the uh, the six essential traits, and I'm just going to read them off for the listener. Visionary, passionate, problem solver, driven, risk taker, and responsible. And you and, and I'd mentioned that in our academy, you know, we teach that at the beginning and we uh, allow for the students to leave if they feel they don't have these traits. And you mentioned you thought you could kind of, in a way, predict what percentage might leave. Does this, do these traits fall into what you're saying right now? And how does it come to you that about 15% uh, may actually not have the traits that signed up to do an academy like this? Well, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) I have found many people think they're entrepreneurial who are not. Mm. And they think it because they want to be. Want to be entrepreneurs are worse than a nuisance. They're <laughs> they're a danger to themselves and others. Um, we weren't all created to be entrepreneurs, and not every entrepreneur was created to use those abilities in the same way. So some people with the entrepreneur mo, and and I deal with four instinctive modes that I identified. I didn't create them. I identified them. And the one that is most necessary for a quick start is to be a risk taker and do trial and error and to figure out what works when you see it happening. The manager has another instinct that is strongest for them, and it's the fact finder. Now, we we all have all of these, but in different zones. You either initiate with it or you accommodate or you prevent Entrepreneurs prevent taking too much time to figure out what's happened in the past. They don't deal with the past, they deal with the future. And I think that's one of the key traits of the entrepreneur is they just don't dwell on what happened before. In fact, they can't even remember some of it. They could if they tried, but (laughs) they're into the future. That is so good. The fact finder is not only dealing with the past, but is very strategic. So my son is a fact finder. There's nothing genetic about these traits. And so my son, who is now president of the company I founded, he's 
in the room next door to where I'm talking. And I, I passed him by and said, I'm going to go talk about you. And he said, yeah, I like <laughs> you. Sure. But my family's used to my using them as examples. But David Colby is a fact finder with a second suit in Quicksart. That means that he will look at the past. He'll be very strategic. He cuts a good deal because he's very sure the numbers add up and that everything is uh, fair. As a little kid, he keeps saying, that isn't fair. And I'd mm -hmm. say, so David, someday you'll be a lawyer and you'll be able to say that in court and you'll be really direct. And so sure enough, David's a lawyer, but a lawyer who found he really loved the Colby business and wanted it to thrive in. I was never going to make the Colby thrive long, long, long term. I mean, this is our 50th year for Colby. We start the 50th year at the end of this year. Mm. Um, so it's it, it's had longevity because it tells the truth. But what I know about people is you don't change. And a lot of people think, oh, I can take a course in entrepreneurialism and I can become a good entrepreneur. No, you can't. And mm -hmm. by the way, the one word that I have a little problem with with your list of words is responsibility. Mm -hmm. There is that's an affect. That's not an instinct. Your other things tied to human instincts and natural innate behaviors. Responsibility is an affect that I care enough and I'm going to take responsibility for that. And I have to tell you, um, there's no core, there's no predictive validity in an entrepreneur taking responsibility. Interesting. Yeah. But when yeah. some of them, when they fail, blame everybody else. Mm. And it was really on them. Um, but the rest of your words, I think, fit and tie very much with how I see entrepreneurs. So that's, a, that's, that's pretty good, 80%. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, Let's talk good. about your entrepreneurial story. I mean, 50 years is remarkable. So congratulations on that. Um, and how did you get started? Where did you feel like, okay, I'm going to, you know, take this to the world? Well, first of all, I started three businesses 50 years ago and they're all highly functional now. And exactly. so I like that record. That's amazing. What made me do it? Um, I'm the daughter of Wonderlick of the Wonderlick personnel test. Mm -hmm. And the Wonderlick personnel test was, uh, and still is, not, it's based, it's not an IQ test, but it's an intelligence test. In other words, it, it's not as accurate as an IQ test, but it will measure your, your working intelligence for office type work. I, before I could read or write, was um, fence posting the results. It was my job as a little kid. To, <laughs> each item was was you know one of four things, and I so I learned how to fence post and build data. I can say I was a test analysis person before I could write my own name. I had a terrible. I'm I'm very very highly dyslexic, um, and proud of it. Mm. it's it's been one of the glories of my life to overcome the bad part of it and to use the good part and there are good parts mm. um but it took my poor mom weeks and weeks of tutoring to get me to write my own name so having been there done that in terms of doing the research when i didn't really know what i was doing but asked a lot of questions and we had one category for male female another category for age and I found biases in some of the questions mm -hmm. by both. And 
Before I could read or write, I was arguing with my dad. Your test isn't fair. I'm surprised they've fed me. <laughs> I'm the youngest of four. I'm mouthing off, criticizing my dad's work. Um, and by the way, I was an unwanted child and told that many times that mm -hmm. they did not want. In fact, the doctor thought I was a tumor and was going to cut me out, but I kicked his hand and, and got rid of the knife just in time. <laughs> so, ah. so I've been kicking my way in ah. into the world and where I wanted to be uh, since I was born. Mm. What was interesting to me was my dad found it uh, amusing, courageous, and interesting that I would criticize him. He did not like it, but it amused him at the same time. And he said, he would argue with me and say, okay, you tell me why I'm wrong and how to fix it. And I would. Mm. And so I was learning about uh, fairness and I was learning about developing test questions before I literally before I could read or write by the same token I never wanted to be a part of the Wonderlick business because I didn't think it was measuring the right thing and I would say but dad you know I loved being a leader whether it was sports or student government or was, oh the high school musical was the most fun but I always loved being a leader. And one of the reasons I liked being a leader was I could help more people become involved in a fair way that we were using what they were good at and keeping people from feeling sad about what they were doing. So that was the beginning of my, in grade school, how do we help people be equal and make it fair? They're so different. And how do we make the differences work together? I was worrying about that in third and fourth grade. <laughs> and I was talking about it with my friends and teachers. And I remember in one teacher conference, the teacher said to my parents, Kathy can't stand it when things aren't fair, but she doesn't know how to keep quiet about it. <laughs> that is still my problem. I can't keep quiet about, you know, it's kind of like dummy, dummy, Kathy, can't you just shut up and, and just let it be? No, I cannot. So why did I start what I've done? It's because I was looking for what's fair and how to identify what makes us equal. Mm -hmm. And when I was almost killed in a car accident and my brain was so severely injured, I couldn't read or write for a year and a half. Wow. That's when I discovered the truth of conation, that there was a part of the mind. My brain was cognitively dead, and they didn't know if it'd ever come back. Mm. But I could listen in the ward I was in, in the hospital, and I was there for over a month. So I got to know the nurses. I got to know other patients. I, I didn't even meet some of them, but we were in a circle in this odd, oddly shaped hospital. So I could hear everything. And I would say to the nurses, the problem with the guy in the room, two doors, and I don't ever know left from right, I'm dyslexic, it's that way. That guy is not telling you what's really hurting him. I don't know if it's his pride. I don't know if it's a language problem, 
but he's not telling you the truth because when he goes out and walk, I see where he puts his hand and where the sore is and what's troubling him. And he's not telling you that. And so I'm being this little, I don't know, I, because I was bored, it was so interesting to talk about people I wasn't seeing. I didn't know their names, but I could give the nurses clues. And finally, the nurses said, you know, everything, every clue you've given us has helped us help the patients. Mm. How do you know these things? I ended up, while in the hospital, still unable to read or write, do a seminar, much like I do now on conation, that, that these are the four modes. And how did I know all that? By watching people all my life. Mm. By not, I knew what not to believe. And I didn't believe in my father's work. It wasn't that he was lying. He didn't, he, he really believed, he believed in his work. But I knew how smart you were on the kind of tests the Wonderlick is would not say anything about how productive you would be or creative you would be. Mm -hmm. So my work was to figure that out, the wow. things that my dad hadn't done. Mm -hmm. And when I was in the hospital, um, you know, I already had a successful business. I had resources for the gifted. It was successful because of the brilliant name. Everybody wanted their kids to be gifted. So, I mean, I was in Time Mag Magazine as one of the most successful entrepreneurs early on, really and truly. Come up with a name like Resources for the Gifted and you will be successful. <laughs> That's what you attribute it to, huh? <laughs> well, I worked, I worked very hard and I, I did a lot I, of creative things, but the most intelligently creative thing I did was give that title. So I was writing books and I would write four to five workbooks for kids a week. I kept coming up with new things and new things and new things because mm. I'm a flaming quick start. Yeah. And I just have to keep doing new things and new things, but they all sold. Well, no, I'll tell the truth. I would send out a catalog to schools and, and parents and organizations, and I would list and describe all these books. And then I wrote the ones that sold. If they didn't sell, I never wrote them. Mm -hmm. um, so I did <laughs> things like that, that any entrepreneur listening would identify with. Right. You have to get creative, especially in the startup stages with a good name for the company, mm -hmm. with not over-promising. I only sold the books that sold. I mean, I only wrote the books that sold. And I would tell, say the others were out of, <laughs> what did I say? Out of stock. Out they of were stock. in stock. Um, but I, I think having fun and doing something purposeful and trying to make a difference in the world, those yeah. are the three things that helped me be what I became. Yeah. You know, I hear so many things I want to allude to. Um, I want to start with something that you said about you worked really hard. And one, we, we have a list of, of uh, eight must do's. And one of them is work hard, really hard. And so <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about that? I love to work. Uh-huh. I was really upset this weekend because I didn't have a lot of work to do. 
<laughs> and it, you know, it's 115 to 118 where I live today. Arizona. I, I want, yeah, I want to be working. I don't pay attention to heat if I'm in my air conditioned place. I'm working, but I had nothing on deadline for today that I had to write or do. I do for tomorrow. I'm going to be doing a live seminar tomorrow, but I prefer to have work to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, my husband's in assisted living and my cat is like all cats, just wants to watch me work. He doesn't help <laughs> me work. He doesn't start the work. Mm -hmm. um, so I find work is one of my greatest joys mm. and I need to be doing it. Mm. I love my work. Yeah. And, and, you know, just thinking about your passion for around how you developed these um, products uh, another must do that we talk about is that the bigger the problem you solve in the world, the more successful you will be. And had you ever thought about this big problem that you're solving? Which one? <laughs> exactly. Because, exactly. I mean, I, I've been trying to solve multiple problems. <laughs> the, the biggest problem is the lying, absolute lying of the scientific world about the existence of conation. Mm -hmm. I mean, lying since Jung and Freud lied about it. I mean, they knew it existed and it was too hard. It was too much work. Neither one of them was known for hard work, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, they both referenced conation and said, well, I'll leave that for someone else. Okay, so you left it for this dyslexic woman <laughs> with no science. I mean, my degrees in journalism because I was so dyslexic, they were, and I would write backwards and I would do. And so I went into journalism because it was my weakness. Jeez. I had to do that in order to be um, credible. Mm -hmm. And so four years of journalism took all the good writing out of me, but made me credible. Go figure. Mm -hmm. uh, would I do it again? Mm, yes. You would. Um, well, because school was so boring, I started a major crusade with a student government association and they were, they were lying and cheating. And Tom Hayden, remember Tom Hayden of the Chicago seven, the communists, he was representing students and I said, no, he's not. He's a communist and he's older than the rest of us. And so I debated him in colleges across America. <laughs> and talk about fun. First of all, he's he's a lovely person and brilliant. And I disagreed with him on every single thing that came out of his mouth. So <laughs> debating him was a joy, but I got to travel America while I was still a college student mm -hmm. and be on campuses arguing for something I thought was important to argue about. Yeah. Um, I don't argue for the sake of arguing. Some people think I do. I will argue for the sake of the truth. Mm -hmm. I believe in two things being fundamental, the truth and equality. Mm -hmm. And my work tells the truth about what makes us equal. Mm. that's why I love my work. Mm -hmm. So you, you just, in your discussion about going to college, you know, we, we talk to entrepreneurs and some will ask, should I go, if they're young, they'll say, should I even go to college? Is it worth it? And so we always like to ask, you know, did you go to college, which you did? I think you went to Northwestern, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? In Chicago. And, 
Um, and so what I just heard from you, but please like build on this, if you think it's necessary, is that the coursework itself wasn't necessarily the education that you received. It was everything beyond that. And it's that in itself was coursework. worth it. Say again. <laughs> I, I got a full year's credit without going to classes. <laughs> when you went around debating? I made up my own work. It was the <laughs> around the country debating. And I wrote a thesis. I wrote a document on the inequality um, that was, oh, I've always been, equality has always been a major thing for me. Mm -hmm. But also I wrote about how American students were being duped. Mm. And guess what? I didn't find out for decades later that the CIA was tracking me because they thought I was a double agent. <laughs> so, <laughs> kidding me. Some of the funniest things in my life have just happened because dumb luck or yeah. just because I was willing to argue and I, I'll be out there. Okay, fine. But I had no idea that mm. they thought I, I was the communist oh my for a while That's and that I was just setting it up. Um, I mean, it's just there. There've been a couple books written about student activism yeah. in in the eighties, and that was me. Wow, eighties, sixties, sixties or eighties? It doesn't 60s. matter. Yeah, Let's yeah, stick yeah. with eighties. I've been an activist all those decades. <laughs> and, you know, I'm in my eighties, and I'm still an activist. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I don't know when the it feels sometimes like, you yeah. know, I'm just meant to be me. You were. But yeah, you were for yeah. sure meant to be you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you know, it, it's always been that my goal was to make a difference. My hmm. goal was to make a better world. Yeah. I'd never cared about the money. And that's where I'm different from so many entrepreneurs. And and by the way, it makes me angry when we talk about entrepreneurs as making money. I think I'm a classic entrepreneur. And to this day, I really don't care about the money. Mm -hmm. it, it is a way of keeping score, as we all say, but it isn't my way of keeping score. How many people did I help? Mm -hmm. How many lives did I impact? How, mu how much change have I made? When I've had an interesting thing I'm almost hesitant to talk about. But no, I guess please. I will. In the last few months, I have had... Several people call me or or it's all ended up being phone calls eventually who over the years have taken the Colby and who are now um, on their deathbeds. They're in hospice or they, they know that they're not going to make it. And they're calling me, some of them I knew and some of them I didn't know, to thank me for the fact that they were dying knowing who they were. Wow. That they felt whole because they the Colby index had clearly defined for them this is who you are yeah and that knowing that has brought them peace and that the dying with peace knowing that they were who they were mm -hmm. and in some cases i knew them very well in other cases i wasn't even quite sure who they were so i can honestly say I don't care about being an entrepreneur. I've never cared about money. What I care about is that. Mm -hmm. That people have found peace and joy from the work I created. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't my work. There's a higher power, I feel very strongly, that has guided me through this. Yeah. 
-hmm. And I began studying conation without knowing the word when I was a little kid, when I was in middle school. And all the work, I mean, all the time I was Tom Hayden, I'm trying to figure out what makes you tick? What's your MO? What, <laughs> who are you? But by the time I discovered the word conation, it was just being taken out of dictionaries because it was a useless word because no nobody kidding. was using it. Mm. Do they Our use academic it? Is, world, it, is it back in? Oh, very rarely. Very rarely. For the and, audience, explain it. Well, conation... I found is the ancient philosophers talked about the three parts of the mind, thinking, feeling, and doing. Thinking is the cognitive, feeling is the affective. And doing, Freud again had the word, Jung had the word conation for it. Conative comes from the Latin word conitas, meaning action, doing. I studied all this on my own finding ancient stuff, trying to understand these three parts of the mind, because I believe there were, but in no class, I, I called universities and asked if they had a course on conation. And most of them would say, we don't even know what that is. Some mm -hmm. said, well, why would we do that when no one really believes it? So I did a lot of research and I did it with data and I did it studying real people and I was so empowered with all my data and all my proof. Uh, and I, one of my high school friends was the dean of, of the School of Psychology, whatever they called it, at Harvard. So I told him I was going to come to Harvard and show him my data and wanted to talk to him about my work. And we'd been buddies. And so we'd, okay, fine. I'm interested in what you're up to, lady. Um, <laughs> So I get there and I show him my work and I have him take the Colby index and he has some of his patients and coworkers take the Colby. And, and then he gets back to me and, and, he, and I'm back in uh, Boston. And he said, Kathy, turn around and run as fast as you can run away from Harvard. So what did you, what did you see? What's wrong? <laughs> and he said, what we saw is your work is the truth. And you know something we don't know, and you've proven the third part of the, the brain. You've proven it. That makes all of our textbooks wrong. Mm -hmm. It makes all of our lectures wrong. And See, he said, there's no professor at Harvard that doesn't want you to die. Yeah. I mean, they, you are the most powerful um, negative in their potential future. Wow. They don't want to admit they're wrong. They don't want to correct themselves in their lectures. They want don't want to have to write new theory. So you are a serious problem here. Get out mm. because they will destroy you. Jeez. Yeah. Amazing. You know, <clears throat> you shared this story a moment ago about the people that had contacted you that they were on their deathbed. And we talk about for entrepreneurs, there's the story of the dream. And like to me, that sounds like a dream after all this, these years, 50 years being in business, that somebody would come back to you at that point in their life. Some people that don't even, you know, that you don't even know that well or well at all and come back and share that with you. It's such an impact. But we also, 
uh, always like to hear the story of what we like to call the nightmare. <laughs> and so in your time <laughs> in business, 50 years, I got to imagine you'd have one or two stories that were kind of like the nightmare story. <laughs> oh, folks, <laughs> trademark, copyright. Oh, Mark. Oh, right. My nightmares were when people stole my work and put their wow. names on it. Jeez. And I went through hell with that. I ended up in the Ninth Circuit Court. That's just below the Supreme Court. I paid over $100,000 in legal fees to try to protect the Colby Index. And the guy who ripped me off what had been in my training classes. He'd gone through the training on how to use my work. And so he set this up. Um, in court, it went for weeks and weeks, a trial that was very long. And at the end of the trial, they still hadn't called me. They interviewed all kinds of people and they were trying to prove that my work was fair game, that anybody could use my work. So they'd finally call me and I'm sitting there in the courtroom and the judge decides he wants to ask me a question. Their attorney has had asked me a few and the judge who I'd done some research on, uh, a kindly old guy who believed in seeking the truth, a man of faith, strong faith. Um, and he said, Miss Colby, is your work fact or fiction? How do you think I answered that? Fact. If I say fact, it's public domain. Facts are public domain. I can't own them. Oh. If I say fiction, you wouldn't be interviewing me. Kathy made this up and she admits <laughs> it. Oh, jeez. A lot of people think I made it up. Interesting. I, I never sold a single index. It took 10 years of research with extensive data before yeah. I sold the first index. Mm -hmm. 10 years. And he's asking Listen me- to that, entrepreneurs, 10 years. <laughs> I did 10 years of That's research. passion. It's passion. And, it's, um, and I was single parenting two kids during most of that Amazing. time. So back to I the story so the judge asks you, is that I'm, fact I'm or proud. I'm sorry. I'm proud of uh, several things. Certainly the truth of my work. Yes. But my yes. kids, mm. my son is now president of Colby Corp. Yes, David. And David Colby is a brilliant lawyer and a brilliant CEO. And so I got payback for all that time that I struggled to keep this business alive. It's fun. I, I'm down the hall from where he's working right it's now. So nice. It's just such a joy to have my wow. son running this I can't business. Imagine. And I me can't not imagine. having to run it because it's no yeah, more entrepreneurial. It's a fact finder job now. That's so, right. But let me answer the, the question. Is it a fact or fiction? I turned and looked at the judge eyeball to eyeball. And I said, sir. My work is neither fact nor fiction. It's the truth. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. And so what did the judge say? <laughs> maybe I'm, I'm severely dyslexic. I'm ADHD. I got all these, you know, I have to go to, you know, I, I'm really a, a dummy in so many ways. 
but when I need it, I'm a creative problem solver. And <laughs> in that case, all of you entrepreneurs listening out there know, I didn't know what I was going to say. I just said it. Yeah. And it was the truth. Mm. The truth is, it's the truth. Mm. And the judge looked at me, and he closed his book, and it was clear he was done. He knew all, he had all he needed. And in his decision, which was for me, he said, he quoted me and said, this is neither fact nor fiction. It's the truth. Wow. And only Kathy Colby owns her own truth. That's good. That's a great story. Yeah, you know, it's sometimes what you don't think about. Yeah, yeah. That sometimes our greatest wisdom just comes from saying the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, that one mother must do that's coming up for me is, and I imagine this happened, and I'm picking up on different, you know, cues to it as you speak, is that you, we need to take criticism and doubt with a grain of salt. And, you know, how did you navigate that as you were, you know, growing your businesses? Because I imagine- I didn't you, take it. I did not take it with a grain of salt. You didn't. You did no, it, did it, no, no, did no, it no, motivate no. you? I would say to every entrepreneur out there, seek the wisest advisors you can possibly find and tell them you want the truth. And you want the armed varnish truth. You want to hear it, you know, give yes. it to me. I, I need to know. And I had, and still have the same accountant that I had in the early years. I mean, we're buddies. And I had a couple different attorneys, one in particular who was in the courtroom when I said what I said, <laughs> said he wished he could take credit. That, and I said, yeah, you can take credit because you taught me to keep my mouth shut mostly. Um, which is not easy for me. <laughs> the, the fact I had brilliant advisors, there were so many times, I had a time when five of my employees, I called them the gaming of five, were hired by an outsider with a promise that they could take over the business, take it from me and he would lead it and they would become rich. Kathy didn't know how to make money. Everybody knew Kathy didn't care about making money. She wanted to make a difference. And he said, you can make money off her work. We just need to get rid of her. And uh, you know the, the company almost failed to get through that because five key, three of them were managers. Yeah. And they were stealing all kinds of things from me, um, my intellectual property financial security, et cetera. I made the decision I couldn't close down the business because one of my employees was a handicapped minority who would have no other place to work. Um, and we labored hard to try to figure out how to protect her if I closed down the business. And we decided we couldn't protect her as well um, as we could with the corporate um, programs we had. So I said, okay, we will close the office. And my advisors and I met in a car parked in the grocery store parking lot to have <laughs> our meetings because we knew it would, they were probably finding ways to tap into what we were saying. And I ran the business from a car in the grocery store parking lot for 
several weeks oh, and my wow. advisors would meet me there and, <clears throat> and together we figured out how to keep the company alive amazing and the five people ended up um, making a mistake or two which they people people of ill will who think they're really smart enough to harm someone like us who are truth seekers and it, it's a lot harder to find the truth than to steal from people so they don't have they don't have the cognitive testing that that you and I would have. Yeah. And my advisors were brilliant. And we caught them all. No kidding. Well, what we caught funny. them because they started sending texts. At the time, it was not text. It was uh, faxes. Faxing. <laughs> and they were sending faxes to each Jeez. other. And they copied faxes to their own attorney to show the attorney all the things they were doing. And the attorney turned them in. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. He said, this is not right. What a story. Um, but I have, I had to fight a lot of um, bad employees. Mm. You have to be, I mean, I trusted everybody when I started in business. Now I know we can't do that. Mm -hmm. You just can't do that. You've got to be very watchful. Yeah. So then I set up traps. <laughs> you you mentioned, you know, you're, you're a visionary. Do, do you see yourself as that way? I don't know if you've used that word. I can't. I don't use that word for myself. Yeah. Uh, it's not my vision. Okay. I mean, this maybe sounds corny. An how about an idea person? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So yes. let me refer to you in that way. I'm definitely an idea person. So as an idea person, was there a point in the business where you brought in sort of like a complimentary counterpart so you could be the idea person and the complementary counterpart would run the day-to-day -day operations, which I imagine that's what David's doing right now. But was there ever a time before David? Yes. Um, I tried with several people. Mm -hmm. And it was very difficult because people, first of all, this just sounds impossible. Men would not want to interview with a woman. Yes. And the men who did mostly were doing it. And one who interviewed very well, and I said, I, I, I like what I hear you say, and I'd be interested in hiring you. Would you be interested in taking a job? And he said, no. I said, well, then why are you here? He said, I'm here for the experience of being interviewed by a woman. I just couldn't imagine what it would feel like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was so hard Different to times, hire men. Uh, at first, that first Colby Corp was all women employees. Is that right? Because no man would would interview with me. Mm -hmm. And and then Time Magazine did a cover story on me, and I'm, suddenly I had some uh, credibility. Makes me mad that something like that gives you credibility. Um, <laughs> but but it did, and it helped me hire. Yeah, some... you're a trailblazer. I am a trailblazer. <laughs> Someone's got to cut the path on the way and you're one of those people and i got lost because i'm dyslexic i love when someone said you're a trailblazer and i said yes and you can go down all the places i got lost and you'll get lost <laughs> too if you follow me do not follow me on all my paths because i've gone down some yeah. really strange paths but but one thing i find interesting and you mentioned it at the beginning was that although you had trouble finding kind of like a counterpart with David there now, he seems like the perfect counterpart because I notice a sense of, in a way, maybe it's not the right word, but relief 
you know, in, in other words, he can now run the business. And I saw you kind of go, oh, and he can run it and I can, you know, and, and it just gave me a sense that you could be, you know, the idea person and work on the things and be, you know, and what we like to call in different stages, be in your personal sweet spot. Well, I was single when um, I, I did, I was married for the first part of the business. And one of the reasons I became single is my husband didn't believe a woman should be running, running a business, didn't believe I should be an entrepreneur, didn't I should stay home and take care of the two kids who were very competent. Um, and a large part of why I didn't stay in the marriage was because he didn't believe I could be who I was. Mm. Um, and then they didn't believe I should have the freedom to be who I was. He thought it was disgusting was his word. It's disgusting that you have a business and I'm embarrassed by it. And uh, Okay, fine. Bye. Um, it's not just David. I remarried. My second marriage was after the car accident. I mean, this guy who I was going to meet before the car accident to go with me, there was this thing, Phoenix 40, which is supposed to be the top 40 yeah. executives in town. Yeah. And guess what? I was the only woman invited and I had to find a man who could, you know, deal with that. And there was this guy that I was in. Yeah, you can deal with him. And so I married Will Rapp. Um, and all we got to know each other because when we were first supposed to meet was the day of the car accident that almost killed me. And I was in the hospital for over a month. The doctor told me I would never work again. And when that upset me, he said, why do you care? You'll get insurance and you'll be fine. And I said, you don't understand. I have to work. I have of to course, do yeah. And so it's a long story and it could be a book, how I recovered because I had such severe brain injuries. I could not read or write for a year and a half. And I'm an author and a publisher. The hardest work I've probably ever done is retrain my brain to read and write because I had to do it on my own. Mm. There was no doctor who believed in me. They, no doctor ever, they all told me I would never work again. And I, I could get good, so I could get probably enough money from insurance that I would be okay. And I said, I don't care about the money. I have to work. Mm. Anyway, when I got back to the office, where I had had 32 employees. When I went back after, it was a little over a year, there were only three people in the office. And one was my accountant, one was my personal assistant, and the other person was cleaning up in the back. I don't know what gave me the gumption to go back in there and start from scratch. Mm. But I did. And I know people were watching me. Um, some journalists were writing about me that I didn't know at the time, local journalists. But the people who needed my work were still out there. So I put out a catalog with the same as I'd always done. And if they wanted it, I'd figure out how to, and so I dictated, I couldn't write, but I dictated books mm -hmm. and I went back into business, but the business was never the same because now I had to start 
I knew about conation. I discovered the truth of conation the week before the car accident because my dad died and all I, I didn't ask for any money. I didn't get any inheritance. All I got and all I asked for were the textbooks in his office in our home. And when those books came, it included a thesaurus, this paper with covered thesaurus, but I remember him using it and I'd used it. And I'd been working on the will. What What is the will all about? I had to understand that more. Again, this is before the car accident. But it's, they'd been trying to steal from me all along and I'd had to be willful to keep it together. I looked up the will and under will in the real thesaurus in Roger, not the one made up by Americans, it's alphabetical. The real thesaurus under will is the word conation, volition, will, and conation. Mm. I decided I'm going to figure out what conation is. And three days later, I was in the hospital with brain damage. Mm. But I spent all the time in the hospital trying to understand, am I using my thinking? No, I, my brain's gone. I can't read or write. But I was willfully, they would tell me, they'd put me in water, leave me alone, but tell me, just lie there. We want you to be in the water where you have less pain. The minute they'd go, I'd start moving everything I could move and trying to build my muscle strength. And I knew what I was doing was cognitive. Mm. It was cognitive. It was cognitive. Amazing. It wasn't emotional. It was cognitive. So it was while I was in the hospital recovering from severe brain injury from a car accident that I learned the truth of conation. Mm. And once I knew it was true, I wasn't making it up. I wasn't reading it out of a book. I personally experienced the power of conation. That's what changed my life. Mm. It's a great story. Very inspiring for especially anybody, but the listeners, the you know early stage entrepreneurs and how you turn this situation that you had into your life into you know, a life's work. You know, I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I thought of myself as <laughs> responsible for communicating with the world, uh -huh. children and parents. Read these books, do this creative problem solving. You will find it doesn't matter that you don't get A's. You are a creative problem solver. Mm -hmm. I was trying to reform education. I was using the materials I was writing now, dictating to tell people you have what it takes to be a creative problem solving solver. And that's more important than IQ. That's more important than um, any other way you could achieve you. If you have creative problem solving, you decide what you want to do and you'll be able to do it. So good. Thank you, Kathy. Kathy, is there any last words that you'd like to <laughs> share with our before I croak? <laughs> well, we know you have an amazing sense of humor. That is for sure. <laughs> well, it, it, let me say this. Um, I think my humor has been one of the most important things about me. If, I, I have a, a pretty sad personal story about my life and how I've been ripped off and cheated and, and denied and 
but it's always I've always found humor in it. It just I've always found that the people who thought they were harming me had no idea how often I laughed at them about them. Um, have I ever written a book about it? No, because I don't know how to write it funny. I've never tried. Uh, I can say it and people laugh. But the the truth is, I'm a weirdo. There's nothing about me that's ever been normal. There's, I could tell you story after story. I, I have no talent I for music. I can't sing well. I had a, my sister was a fabulous singer. I'm trying to dance because of my dyslexic. After the first dance class, the teacher asked my mother in front of me to never bring me back because she'd be saying, turn to the left and I'd turn to the right and mess up the whole you know, thing. She said, we, we just can't have her here. I, I wanted to play the piano and, and the music teacher said, she can't look up at the music and then down at the keys. It, she loses all sense it, it doesn't work Kathy will never play the piano so I became the director of the high school musical <laughs> of course voila I mean there you it, go. It, I, I would say to my children my grandchildren everybody listening to this anybody I can say it to never say can't because there's always a sneaky way you can Mm -hmm. but, but sometimes you got to get really creative and use your creative abilities to figure out, I didn't want to do that anyway. What can I do that I really want to do? Hmm. There'll be lots and lots and, lots and things you never thought of. I mean, I never thought when I was a school kid that I would be a publisher. I never thought I'd be a theorist. I never thought I'd be a brain expert. Well, I know more about the brain than most people studying the brain. Mm -hmm. But I don't go around saying, oh, I'm a brain. Yes, I am a brain expert. And if you want to know, I'll help you. But I um, I want to have more fun than being around brain experts. Mm -hmm. I mean, I haven't found there much fun. <laughs> That's a good way. So I choose to be around entrepreneurs and media people and interesting people selling Colby indexes because we all have a good time together. I don't think if I was working in brain research, I'd be. No, you would be having that kind of fun. I'll, uh, I'll have lunch with them. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Kathy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It was so fun and interesting and wise. Everything that I heard today, and I know the listeners are going to feel the same way. And to all the amazing entrepreneurs who are listening today, I greatly appreciate you spending time with Kathy and me. And I wish you all much love and gratitude. <laughs>